everybody, welcome to Stock Bites for Thursday, July 9th. We're doing something a little different today. I've read some articles and seen some tweets by the president about getting kids back into school. So I decided to bring on my good friend, Dr. Tony Olive. Tony's a staff physician at Texas Children's Hospital specializing in gastroenterology, hepatology, and nutrition. He's also an associate professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine. And we're going to cover the likelihood and feasibility of a vaccine being developed, how we can safely get kids back in school, what wearing a mask actually does, and what's going on inside of Houston hospitals. Stay tuned after the interview for a quick recap of my thoughts on how this relates to the stock market. As as always, this is not investment advice. Do your own research before investing. If you have any comments, ideas, send them. Stockbytespodcast at gmail.com. Stockbytespodcast at gmail.com. Enjoy the show. So with that, we're going to bring in Dr. Tony Olive. Tony, America surpassed 3 million COVID cases on Wednesday. We've had over 130,000 deaths. I'm hoping that you can take us inside what's actually going on uh, inside hospitals. And I, I realize this, will, this conversation will be slightly slanted toward Houston, which is where you work. But you know, are, are the doctors and the staff uh, at, at your hospital worried about our ability to handle this new surge in COVID cases. Yeah, well, George, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me uh, to your podcast. I really appreciate that. And it's a wonderful opportunity to talk about uh, this hot topic and, uh, you know, obviously get, give some insight uh, from someone that's at the Texas Medical Center. Uh, I, I do want to say, first of all, that uh, uh, before, before we start, I would like to just make a disclaimer that uh, while I am a professor, associate professor at Baylor and have clinical appointment at Texas Children's, my opinions may not necessarily reflect those of those particular institutions. So I just want to make that clear. But yeah, so what's, uh, so three, three million, uh, three million cases, that's a lot. Okay? It's a big number. But put it, but put it in perspective. Uh, so uh, we've got 330 million people in the U.S. So, uh, you know, if you even if you presume that what some people have said that perhaps 10 times as many people are actually infected uh, than than we know. So that's let's say that's 30 million. So it's still, you know, 10 percent, 10 percent or so, a little less than 10 percent of the population. But nonetheless, it's it's a big number and. And obviously, this is a huge public health uh, issue that we're dealing with here. And to answer your question, yes, we are concerned about the surge, particularly here in the Houston area. Um, there have been, over the past month or so, as things sort of opened up in, the, in Texas and in Houston specifically, there's been uh, a tremendous uh, sort of uptick in cases and now hospitalizations and uh, that was expected i mean we all kind of kind of expected that uh and um so you know it's, it's been it's been a big issue and so we are worried uh you know I, i'm on the pediatric side particularly on the adult medicine side which seems to be affected most with this virus uh, the hospital Hospitals are starting, particularly in the Texas Medical Center. I can't speak for other community hospitals in the Houston area, but in the Texas Medical Center, 
uh, they're starting to feel some strain. And so capacity in the ICUs is now reaching what we call quote unquote full capacity. Um, and, uh, but there are the, the hospitals, the Texas Medical Center and, and the hospitals affiliated with it uh, have plans in place for quote unquote surge capacity. And so there's different levels. So uh, phase one capacity is basically what one would consider as normal capacity. And we've now reached that max. And so we're entering into phase two. Uh, and essentially what happens in phase two is now you're starting to pull other resources. You're starting to, uh, to change staff ratios, perhaps assign uh, more patients to one particular staff, starting to bring in other staff to sort of meet that, that surge. Uh, the bed capacity is still there. Um, you have the ability to, uh, to bring in other beds and convert those into ICU type beds. And so that can be achieved by, for example, uh, transferring patients to other facilities. For example, our pediatric facility, Texas Children's Hospital, is accepting adult uh, patients that are not as critically ill, uh, which allows the adult hospitals to free up some space for more critically ill uh, patients. Um, so that's one way to, to sort of um, increase that capacity. Another way which we had done kind of at the beginning of the pandemic was, uh, because we weren't sure where it was going, was uh, to, um, uh, to sort of curb uh, elective procedures, particularly those procedures that would then require that patient to stay and use up a hospital bed. Okay, so there's, there's different strategies that can be used uh, to, um, to sort of improve capacity, so to speak. Um, and uh, so that's sort of, so those plans are in place. They've been in place essentially since this started, even before this started. Uh, the Texas Medical Center uh, group uh, really uh, was sort of at the forefront in anticipating this. And so, uh, so we're, we're worried for sure because of the uptick, um, but we feel like uh, like we're prepared, right? And that's ultimately what we're trying uh, uh, to do is, is, to, is to keep the hospital system from being overwhelmed. Of course, you can only do that for so long. If cases continue to, uh, to tick up, even the best laid plans may not uh, be effective enough. And so that's the concern, and that's why the mayor and others have really been uh, hitting hard on, uh, you know, the masking and the social social distancing and doing all the things that we can do as a society to uh, prevent, uh, to keep this infection from sort of running amok, so to speak. So. Has Texas Children's ever taken adult patients before? And what type of training uh, or, you know, PPE stockpiling and kind of everything that goes into accepting this type of patient that you don't usually take and what, what has that preparation been like? Yeah. So, uh, that's a good question. Uh, because obviously we're a pediatric hospital. We do have, we do take care of some adults, um, uh, sort of normally as part of our practice, uh, particularly adults who we, um, you have chronic conditions that, uh, you know, we've taken care of since pediatrics and there may not be, um, 
a great adult service uh, for that particular condition. And so we do we do take care of patients that are over 18 uh, very frequently now. Um, but obviously our, our expertise is in pediatrics. And so, um, uh, so we're, we have, so we have that precedent. We also, of course, we have the women's uh, pavilion. So we deliver babies and we have adult doctors that take care of the pregnant women. And so we do have some adult doctors on staff that we can call on in particular situations if uh, the need arose, if we felt like it was out of out of our expertise, or if it was a patient that we couldn't couldn't handle, and I don't, uh, you know, I assume that'll happen from time to time. I don't, I, I don't know if it has at this point, but um, nonetheless, um, the special isolation unit at the West Campus uh, that we are using for any COVID uh, patients that get transferred over adult COVID patients. Um, has been in place essentially since the it was built for the Ebola crisis, so to speak. So it was it was had Ebola hit hard in Houston at the time, uh, we would have been uh, at at the West Campus that special isolation unit would have been where those patients, whether they whether they be pediatric or adults, would have gone to. And so uh, you know, fortunately, we didn't have to to use it at that point. But now it's. Now it's set up and we're using that for COVID patients, for, for adult patients to get transferred over. There's been a lot made of, look, infections are going up, but the death rate is staying relatively low. And, and you know, I think it's right around four and a half percent. Do you, as surge capacity gets more and more full, let's just assume that cases continue to, to grow. Um, all, you know, you have children's hospitals and you have uh, nurses and doctors who maybe don't specialize in this type of disease all of a sudden being called on, right? You have beds being full. It, it, is the, I guess what I'm trying to ask is why is the death rate so low? Is it because just younger people are now making up a, a bigger part of the infections or is it because we still have capacity left in the hospital system to handle the increases? Yeah, I think uh, that's a good point. I think, I think it's all of the above. Um, you know, certainly when the pandemic first hit and, you know, there was essentially mayhem in places like New York and Italy and so on where hospitals literally were overwhelmed. Uh, and so, you know, you had patients who otherwise, you know, may have, um, you know, perhaps um, may have survived but just because of the the ability to handle so the the ability of the hospitals to uh to take care of them just was was overwhelmed right and so you had that for sure um you also had uh you know uh, so it's estimated now that the 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 average age of the person that's getting infected is about 15 years younger now than it was when the pandemic first hit. So you do have a younger population and we know that the younger uh, population is less susceptible, although not completely immune. There are obviously young people who have comorbidities, obesity being one of them. Obesity is endemic in our population. So younger people are, are obese and that's a huge risk factor. The other, other sort of chronic conditions that young people can get as well. So, so just because you're young doesn't mean you're you're completely immune, but generally speaking, 
younger people tend to survive this better than older individuals. Um, we're also doing a better job of protecting the older population. Uh, you know, there was uh, one of the biggest uh, populations that was hit hard, hardest uh, was the um, the adult facilities, uh, sort of the uh, nursing homes. Yeah, the nursing homes, uh, and I think we're more cognizant of that, doing a better job of protecting that population, which is a very vulnerable population. Uh, so I think it's multifactorial. There's there's uh, a lot of reasons why perhaps the death rate, it, and I say perhaps because we don't know, right? If you if you look at in the Houston area, for example, cases started to surge a month ago. Um, the most late, the latest data from the last couple of days, it's hard to tell whether it's a trend or not. Hospitalizations have ticked down about almost 3%, but ICU admissions are still going up about 3 to 4%, although better than two weeks ago where it was like 5 to 6%. So there may be some, some suggestions that things are starting to taper off with our with increased recognition of social distancing and masking and so on. Uh, but well, we know that deaths lag, right? So it it may be that the deaths just haven't caught up yet. Right. So so that that could be another explanation as well. What what is the stat that we should all be watching? You know, is it num total number of infections? Is it the death rate? Hospitalizations? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, a few weeks ago, I would have told you it was the hospitalizations uh, because I. I didn't feel like we could monitor cases because the testing just wasn't there, right? And so that was kind of all over the place. And so the one constant, if you presume that, that you know, if you had a, a total number of infections and there was a set percentage of those that would be hospitalized, uh, then that was, hospitalizations were really a more accurate depiction of that. Now, I don't know if that's as accurate, it's still, it's still a good measuring point, but now that it's more of a younger population, maybe perhaps a, le a smaller percentage of, of total cases will actually be hospitalized. So it may be less of an indicator. And I think we're doing enough testing now where I think we can actually follow cases, you know, reported cases uh, as a pretty accurate depiction of how things are going um, with hospitalizations also being a trend that we could follow in deaths as well. Um, so yeah, so I think all of those are, are are fairly accurate measures of, of what's uh, of what's going on in the community. Okay, what what is what does wearing a mask do? Great question. Uh, so, you know, if you look at societies that universally wear masks, it's estimated that the transmission rate of COVID is almost uh, up to as as uh, much as one twelfth the rate of societies that don't. So there's a huge impact, primarily thought to be related to that particular individual protecting others around them. But there is a protect even with sur surgical masks, although they're not as effective as the N95 respirators in terms of, of filtering out small particles. But there's it's still estimated that there's probably about a 70 75 percent uh, protective rate to the individual wearing the mask as well. So it's a twofold thing. You're protecting others uh, and you potentially are protecting yourself as well, along with the social distancing. So one has to continue to social distance 
to really optimize that protective effect of wearing the mask. Before we move off this, there hadn't really been a ton about ways to uh, strengthen your immune system and whether or not that's important. Um, I, I would think that it would be, but what, if anything, can you tell us about uh, whether or not that is important? And, you know, is it, hey, take vitamin D or zinc or, you know, what, what can people be doing just kind of over the counter, things that they can get on Amazon um, to help them stay healthy? And if they do uh, catch this thing, to be in a better position to fight it. Yeah. No, excellent question, George. And, you know, obviously your immune system is critical to fighting off any kinds of infections. And in this scenario, uh, anything you can do to optimize your immune system can only be a benefit to you. And so, uh, you know, there's things that you can do beyond taking supplements. Um, so exercise, for example, is huge. And, and uh, you know, I like to go out and run. I like to go walk the golf course with your dad, you know, but uh, exercise really builds up immunity. It builds up uh, mental health, which also helps immunity. Beyond that, supplements, vitamin D has been proven to be crucial in immunity. And so uh, vitamin D deficiency really is a big problem in our society with so many people being indoors and playing video games. We see that a lot in pediatrics. Many, many of our patients are vitamin D deficient. Uh, and so, um, you know, I would encourage people to uh, get some sunlight. 15 minutes of sunlight a day will, uh, will really boost up your vitamin D levels. Um, you know, even perhaps when you have your annual visits to check your vitamin D levels to see if you need any kind of supplement. Uh, but I would probably the one supplement I would I would uh, consider taking, if, particularly if you were uh, known to be low in, in, in that uh, vitamin, would be the vitamin D supplement. Uh, yeah, that's actually yeah. I have a three month old, and our pediatrician gave us a bottle of vitamin D for the baby. And I found you know I'm going in to change a diaper in the morning. I'm shoveling that stuff into my mouth as well. So. Uh, Tony, I'm glad that I have you on. There's been, over the last couple of days, a lot to do about getting kids back in school. And I know that just in the state of Texas, I think they're called the Texas Education Agency, has released suggestions. They, they, haven't, they can't call them guidelines or requirements because then they'd have to pay for them. But they are, they, they've released suggestions about having kids stay six feet apart, which you know, if anybody has gone to a public school in Houston ISD and you've been in a 30 kid classroom, that's not going to work. Um, you know, there's, I think it's been mandated that kids over 10 have to wear masks in school, but what, you know, can you talk a little bit about how susceptible kids are to the virus? Are they as good of, for lack of a better term, or do they transmit the virus uh, as well as adults? And then what would you like to see, what would you like to see schools do in order to ensure, you know, a, a safe return to the classroom? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, my, my wife's a teacher and, and we have these discussions all the time. And uh, I think the bottom line is that all this uh, is in flux in terms of what to do. And, um, you know, kids definitely can get the virus. Uh, it seems like they tend to get uh, uh, lesser clinical symptoms than, uh, than adults do. 
they can transmit the virus. Uh, there's still a lot not known, but uh, there's general feeling that perhaps their transmission, because they're less symptomatic, is uh, not as intense, but still significant. Uh, but again, that's not known. I think, you know, one, one of the things about this, George, is that you have to, there's so much that's not known. I think at this, we're still at the point where we just have to assume that everybody you come in contact with is infected because it's a sneaky virus. And there's, there's, uh, there's people who have no symptoms whatsoever that can infect you, right? And so that really should be our approach. And that's why universal masking, universal social distancing, no matter who you encounter, is prudent, okay? So getting back to the schools, um, so it's, an, it's gonna be an issue, and I think it's gonna have to be an individual, uh, sort of local community-based decision based on the transmissibility and the, the prevalence of the virus in your community. So for example, now at the prevalence rates that we have here in Houston currently, I would not open up schools personally right now. Uh, that's my, and again, that's my opinion, uh, because I think there's just too much virus floating around. Now, there is uh, some suggestion, there's some data that's come out in the last couple of days that the, um, the RT, and I'm getting off on a little bit of a tangent, but I'll get back to the schools. Uh, the RT or the, the, um, the rate at which, or the number of people that one infected person tends to infect is going down. And so, for example, uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was over two. So that means every person that's infected infects two people, okay? And so that is, uh, means that community spread will happen, right? Because you're infecting more people than, um, than not. That's the most effective pyramid scheme I've ever heard of. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but there's some evidence now that that number's now gotten below, below one in the Houston area, which is great because that means that eventually, you know, if you get it below one, eventually it sort of peters out, right? And, and I think that's largely due to, uh, you know, sort of this refocus on social distancing and, and mask wearing and so on. Okay. So that, that's encouraging. So the point being that I'm hopeful that by the time school starts in a month, in our, in our, and I can only speak for our particular community, that uh, the transmissibility and the virus prevalence will be much lower uh, and we'll be able to start schools. Okay. Now, having said that, um, I, you know, I think it, being in school has so many advantages to kids beyond learning, right? There's, there's social, there's emotional growth. Uh, you know, some kids uh, depend on it to, to have their one meal a day, basically. You know, but there's, there's lots of benefits to being in school. So I think any efforts that we can make to get kids into school would be great. We're going to have to be creative about how to do that, obviously. Uh, as you mentioned, it's pretty difficult to social distance in a classroom. So, and I know that people involved in schools are working on those things, uh, things from, you know, having, doing a hybrid system where you have, you know, half the kids show up, the other half do, do online learning, or maybe even splitting the day where half the kids come in the morning, half come in the afternoon, or alternate days, or whatever, some way to, to social distance. Um, and then wearing masks. I think wearing masks should be mandatory. Now, at certain age levels, it's, it's difficult, right? Uh, you know, 
a three and four year old, which is the, the age group that my wife teaches, it's going to be hard to keep masks on those kids, you know. Uh, and so, you know, it has to be individual. Uh, teachers obviously will want to be protected, uh, wear masks themselves. But again, if you're trying to speak to a classroom, it's difficult, right? And uh, you want them to be able to see your facial expressions, particularly the younger kids. So there's not any great answer, but I do think there's a lot of people working on creative ways uh, to make it happen. And uh, I do think we should make every effort to make it happen because school is, is, is very, very important. Attendance at school is very, very important. We know that, um, you know, I've heard that rates as high as in, uh, I know someone who teaches in the KDISD and uh, apparently uh, their numbers suggest that up to as many as 30% of the pay of the individuals of the students did not participate in the online activities for whatever reason, you know, so you're, you're leaving behind a lot of people. So uh, we need to get the kids back in school, but we need to do it safely. I think it needs to be individual based on the transmissibility of the virus at the time in that particular community. And it's going to have to, you know, just kind of go, uh, you know, it's, it's going to, come and go, uh, that, that's going to come and go in different communities and communities are just going to have to adapt to the situation at hand. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, you, you said 30% of the kids weren't participating and it's leaving kids behind. From what I understand in the state of Texas, for the first nine weeks of the school year, you have the option, if you're a parent, to keep your kid home and to do online schooling. That, and that is going to disrupt disproportionately affect lower income households, uh, right? That, like if you two working parents and they have to go to work and they can't keep their five to 10 year old home right. focus, right? Because they're going to be out. Yeah. You know, I, I think that is another. Yeah. There's a, just like you said, there's so many challenges to how to, how to do this. Yeah. And, there's not no, absolutely and that's and that's ultimately who's been affected the most by all this as we all know is is um you know economically uh, disadvantaged uh families uh you know that basically have to work uh can't mm -hmm. can't really uh keep their kids at home can't really help their kids when they're at home uh, may not even have uh the technology necessary to do the online yeah. and so you know those those are the kids that um you know, we'll have to go to school. And those are the kids that we really have to keep in mind the most when we're really devising uh, safe ways to, to get the kids back into the classroom. What do you think the psychological effects on kids is going to be from this, from isolation, from the disruption of their school, um, you know, inability to see friends? Have you and your colleagues talked about, you know, a year, two, three, however many years down the road, what kind of mental either pluses or minuses are going to come out of this for, for kids? Yeah, that's uh, that's a wonderful question. And, uh, you know, I mean, think about the psychological impact it's had on, on you, on me, on adults, you know, think about how our, our world has been rocked. Uh, uh, I can't imagine what it would be like to, you know, to be a kid and, and sort of, sense all this anxiety and tension mm -hmm. in your household and the community uh, people wearing masks uh you know particularly the younger kids they you know there's got to be some 
toll that it's going to take on them, what that will be is really hard to measure. I think only time is going to tell. It will definitely be something that, that psychologists and those people in that, in that realm will be studying, um, uh, you know, with great uh, passion. Um, time will tell. I don't know. It could, uh, could have significant impact. It might make them more resilient. Hard to say, but there's no doubt there's going to be a psychological impact. Yeah. You know, a couple of days ago, federal government came out and awarded this company called Novavax, I think, $1.6 billion for the, some potential dual flu and coronavirus annual vaccine. You know, what, how realistic is the vaccine, you know, creating a vaccine? You know, are we worried about the virus mutating and a vaccine maybe not working? And then what happens if it if if a vaccine is invented by an American company and, you know, like this remdesivir drug that's all of a sudden three thousand dollars a pop? What happens if if the vaccine becomes, you know, a victim of capitalism or or, or profit taking and all that sort of stuff? What uh, maybe I'm asking you a leading question, but what can you tell us about the likelihood of a vaccine being produced and then the accessibility of that vaccine down the road? Yeah, um, great question as well. Uh, so obviously, tremendous efforts have been put forth, uh, both economically and from a work, uh, from a sweat equity standpoint, uh, in uh, working really hard on developing the vaccine. My understanding is not, you know, I'm not an infectious disease doctor, but it's, uh, my understanding is that uh, uh, there's, there's several promising candidates out there and that uh, we could have some, uh, uh, there's some, they're starting to do some phase three studies uh, on several of them in the next several months uh, where they're really going to scale up uh, the, the number of patients that are tested. Uh, and there's a lot of optimism about not just one, but several vaccines actually ultimately being out there, which uh, would be wonderful to have uh, several options. Um, you know, I think I'm hopeful that uh, the, the world, uh, our government and others around the world will take steps if there are any companies that uh, decide to uh, to make this more of a profitable uh, endeavor rather than a than a um, human uh, uh, rather than a uh, compassionate uh, human endeavor um, I, I don't think that I don't see that happening I think these companies are being, are being given a lot of money by governments to to fund their research so and, and their and their uh, trials so i i don't see this happening i think the fact that we're likely going to have several vaccines will bode well for the for not only the u.s but the entire world i think uh they'll be able to scale up the vaccines and really distribute them worldwide i, I think that's the plan and i and hopefully that will come to uh, fruition because ultimately i don't see this, I don't see this virus petering out. I don't see us developing herd immunity. You know, we talked about a best case scenario, 10% of our population is infected right now. You really need upwards of 50, 60, 70% infectivity 
to really achieve herd immunity. So I don't see that happening anytime soon. So we're really uh, relying uh, on you know, the, the newer therapies that have come out like the remdesivir and, and other techniques that people are using to keep people from getting critically ill. They're doing uh, prone positioning to help patients breathe better and get oxygen better to keep them out of ICUs. There's different things that are that we have at our disposal now that we didn't at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's going to be uh, a vaccine uh, that's developed. And then the next question becomes, once that vaccine is developed and available, is can we get enough people to take it, right? right. I mean, if, we, if we're having a hard time getting enough people to mask up, uh, I, you know, I don't know that you know, it's a question that I have, even if the vaccine's available, can we get enough people to take it? Well, Tony, did I miss anything? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate you having me on here. It's really an important topic. And I hope that this conversation has been, has been useful. I would say really the take home points are, uh, again, this is a sneaky virus. You can get infected without even knowing the person next to you has the infection, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to really assume that everybody you encounter has it and you have to take precautions uh, to protect yourself. And I think if we all do that, uh, we'll, we'll be able to function as a society, maybe get back to relatively normal, normal times and uh, hopefully improve our economy, which I know is, is, is something that, that many uh, long for at this point. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that's the message. Okay. It's been there. Uh, it's not going to change. Yeah. And hopefully, uh, more and more people, I think in our local community, more and more people are paying attention to that. I think we're starting to see that with, um, the reduced transmission. And so hopefully that trend will continue. Yeah. It, it does seem like, uh, public policy is starting to slowly move toward, you know, realizing how serious this is and, and we do have a lot of bright people working on it. Yeah. Wear masks, take your vitamin D, stay away from other people and get your exercise. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, whatever, all that's going to go down the tube when your kid has to go back to school and, and, uh, but I don't know, we'll, we'll, we'll climb that hurdle when we get there. Yeah, no, I think we will. I think the, the current numbers are, are, in my mind, are, are optimistic that by the time school starts, the uh, the prevalence of the virus in our community will be less. It's not going to go away, but it'll be less and maybe more manageable. Well, thank you, Tony. All right, George, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, before we go any further, I want to thank Dr. Tony Olive for joining me today on Stock Bites. That was our first interview on the show. I think it's going to be a really tough bar to follow. So thank you. People, wear a mask when you're in public. It helps. Exercise is important. It's extremely beneficial to your immune system. Attendance at school is a good thing for kids. Let's be additive to that solution. Let's not make this a political issue. Let's work on public policy and support school districts and principals and teachers and their efforts to make the school safe. It's hard. If they do have to do some combination of online and in-person attendance, let's try to make it so a third of our kids don't get left behind. Dr. Olave told us a third of the kids didn't participate in online learning this last lockdown. 
Let's figure out a way to get that number down. And finally, this virus is going to be here a while. There's no vaccine around the corner, and even when the vaccine becomes available, there's no way to make people take it. So what that tells me is the consumer behavior that's already been forced to change to accommodate the virus is going to continue. And I wouldn't be surprised if some form of these themes continue to power our economy for the next five years. For example, like the, the ease with which I can get groceries delivered to my house makes me question why I ever set foot in a grocery store in the first place. And an entirely new industry built on technology by high growth companies has developed around this one shift in consumer behavior. You know, this week, Uber was trying to purchase Postmates for $2.4 billion. Now expand that theory across other consumer behaviors that have shifted and will, will remain deviated for the foreseeable future. And you have a very interesting investment set. The rise of these internet and tech-focused fo tech companies is really just getting started. We haven't had 5G. There's going to be an entirely new tech ecosystem on top of the one that's already been built. So COVID is here for a while. Play the market accordingly. Make sure you like and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And join us on Sunday to see if Trey has any hair left after the dismal weeks so far by K-Tob and Workhorse. Thanks, everybody. Mm -hmm.